and welcome to the December edition of Metro Cinema Presents Close-Up, in which we'll be discussing some of the finer points in Metro's December programming, and perhaps even a few other things as well. Throughout the show, you'll be hearing from Mark Templeton, Soft Ions, Matthew Belton of Maggle Tapes, Pigeon Breeders, Boosh, and the magnificent Leonard J. Paul. We're also now a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, which is rather delicious. But for now, grab a pew, get comfy, and we'll give you what we got. My name is Owen. I'm a projectionist at Metro Cinema. I also host the uh, monthly movie trivia at the Tavern on White. Joining me today also is this guy. Hi, I'm William. I scoop popcorn, and I'm a film student. That is correct. Hi, I'm Nick. I also scoop popcorn, and I also project, and I'm also a film graduate. Hey. And also the co-host of the... Yeah, and the co-host yeah. of the trivia. Yeah. Hey, I'm Heather. I eat popcorn. Yes. I have taken film studies classes, and I have co-hosted trivia, and I am the vice president of the Metro Board and the chair of the programming committee. Wow. It, listen to all this, all this one-upmanship. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad that nobody else with any more credentials or qualifications <laughs> to join us today. Uh, so, uh, yes, we're getting into December now. And it's, uh, in the first week of December, it's uh, CGI de-aging spectacle. The Irishman continues its <laughs> lengthy run. I may regret saying that because I haven't seen it yet. And I, 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 it's I, getting I'm, great reviews. Is it? Okay, well, I'm sure it'll be very good. I'm sure as well. Uh, but that was also taking up a lot of November's um, schedule, so let's move on to something that's a bit newer. How about Wednesday the 4th at 2 o'clock? So that'll be part of our Welcome Wednesday screenings, I'm assuming. And it's going to be the 400 Blows, or Le Quatre Sans Coup. That's uh, the debut feature from Francois Truffaut from 1959. Oui, oui. Oui, oui. Mm-hmm. Who's actually seen that one here? I've seen it. You've seen it? By the only one. Oh, no, I watched I it at... You're a bad film <laughs> I watched it at university, but it was such an awful long time ago. Yeah. And also, I, was, I wasn't that enamored with the uh, the French New Wave at the time. That's kind of how I feel, although I, I think I was into the New Wave, but less into Truffaut at the time. Um, more, of, more of a Godard person. Yeah, although Godard is so hit and miss, but I at the time I was just a bit more intrigued by him for sure. Um, he's, a, he's more of an Agnes Varda. Way more, oh, there you yeah. go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's actually um, the that's that's um, the left bank, you guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Chris Mark is my fave. True, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. So I think I had associated Truffaut with like Spielberg in my mind. Like, don't they have some <laughs> kind of relationship? Do they? <laughs> I think so. I think so. I'm sure Spielberg probably has some said some things about Truffaut. I think, like, yeah. I think the relationship Something. you're talking of is the fact that he was in, in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah, <laughs> Which but I think they, for some people, will be the only experience of Francois Truffaut they have. Um, yeah. Recently, though, I did watch Le Peu Douce, The Soft Skin, okay. which is, I think, a really great um, Truffaut movie that is about him having an affair and does not paint him in a very positive light. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it was a kind of a surprise that I, I just happened upon it and was like, well, I'll try this out. And it kind of made me reconsider Truffaut. Maybe I should give him another chance. Francois Truffaut's The 400 Bows was indeed his directorial debut and one of the defining films of the French New Wave. The film stars Jean-Pierre Lyot as Antoine Douanel, a misunderstood adolescent in Paris who struggles with his parents and teachers due to his rebellious behaviour. It was also the first of five Truffaut films in which Lyot plays the character of Douanel. The film is also a semi-autobiographical account of the lives of Truffaut and his friends and stylistically expresses Truffaut's personal history of French cinema, as well as very direct reference to Jean Vigo's Zéro de Conduite. The film is also dedicated to renowned French film critic and theorist André Bazin, whom Truffaut considered to be his spiritual father and who died just as the film was about to be made. 
as well as a character study, The 400 Blows is also an expose of the injustices of treatment of juvenile offenders in France at the time. So what about this Atlantics? So Atlantics is Maddie Diop's debut feature. Uh, Maddie Diop was, she acted in Cleared the Knees 2008, 35 Shots of Rum, and is also the niece of an African director who did Hyenas and Tuki Buki. Right, those she, are like essential right, African films. Right, some classics. Yeah. Um, yeah, I saw this when I went to TIFF. Um, I thought it was pretty good. The score is really great. It's sort of like this cool, like sparky electronic thing. Do you know who it's by? Oh, I got no clue. Sorry, mate. That's all right. And <laughs> 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 um, yeah, no, it's really interesting. I thought uh, she definitely takes a lot of influ- influence from Denis in terms of like taking sort of pulpy like genre tropes and like contorting them toward like a kind of serious social critique. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting. Like I think the film was about, I know the film was about a bunch of uh, Senegalese sort of workers and like laborers that try and flee and sort of, you know, it gets a little complicated and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, it's real good. Okay. And so this is also notable as the first time a black woman had been nominated for... I think she won something at 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 Con, yeah. yeah. But I think even not, it might even be nominated or won. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. That's uh, that is going to be a, a new release for us. So we're showing it. I think we're showing it a couple times. Yeah, there's two or three screenings. Yeah, two or three. So go. Uh, obviously, as we're going to keep repeating, go to MetroCinema.org to find out more details about that. But that screens for the first time on Friday the sixth at six forty-five, and following that immediately is uh, the latest film from Peter Strickland called In Fabric, uh, which uh, although I think it's, an, it's a new release for us, perhaps in Canada, but I think it came out in 2018 in England. Is anyone keen on the work of Peter Strickland? I haven't I've seen th- any of his stuff yet. I know really? we're That's, a huge fan. I found fan. that surprising. Yeah. Duke, of Duke of Burgundy and Barbarian, Barbarian Sound Studio. I love yeah. Barbarian Sound Studio so much. That's yes. one of my really? favorite movies. Oh my God. I love it's a, it is yeah. a fantastic film. And it? I have watched The Duke of Burgundy. It didn't hit me the same way, but... No. Well, this one looks like it's very inspired by Argento oh, man. Gento too, mm-hmm. right? The last 20 minutes of Barbarian Sound Studio? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so oh, okay, I'm excited now. Now I didn't know that. Now, but wait, have you now. watched the trailer as well? Yeah, for In Fabric, I know. I've, I the trailer's I, amazing. I have the vibe, yeah. but I want to yeah. see it. As with uh, all of Strickland's work, the experience of watching his films is like that of uh, it's like ASMR. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I love it. Um, and I think that's uh, that's very that's very intentional. <laughs> and weirdly because we have Midsummer in the background here, as uh, divisive as it seems to have been. So, you know, the, the uh, I mean, regardless of what you may have thought of the film, I thought that the uh, the kind of like the parallel of having this perpetual um, uh, gaslighting situation mixed with the sensory um, disruption of having taken drugs all the time, mm-hmm. it's a very disjointed, exp- like it f- feels like a very physical film as opposed to an intellectual film yeah which is something that i really Sorry, enjoy. you were taking you were the one who had taken drugs all the time i was not taking any <laughs> oh, drugs <okay. laughs> i thought they were going to take more drugs you would like them to have taken more drugs okay wait well, wait what are we talking this not. that's just that's just what that's how i He's felt comparing the two yeah, yeah i think in fabric is not dissimilar in that you're uh, thrown into this very disjointed and fractured world as you are with all of his other films uh, particularly Barbarian uh, Sound Studio, things will kind of like you, you'll be thrust into some part of a narrative and then it, it will just pull you out immediately as well. 
and uh, it's very unsettling and hypnotic at the same time I think it's like you've fallen asleep in front of the TV and I don't know if you have the test card uh, things on TV we used to have them in England where once the scheduled programming had finished yeah. you just wake up to this weird noise mm-hmm. or uh, like ambient music and it was like you were just you, you woke up in a dream yeah. it's yeah. very very strange but it also features uh, do you know Barry Adamson he uh, was uh, uh, came to prominence in the 70s for his work with bands Magazine, Nick Cave and the Bad Ooh. Seeds, Visage and Pansonic. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he uh, also worked on the soundtrack to David Lynch's Lost Highway in 97. So it's got like a pretty interesting pedigree. Should we say what it's about? I'm about to do that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I kind of like got lost in, in talking about the things I like about it the most. So that's that's what that's what these notes are. But it is okay. about a, it's based on a, a 1937 novella. Uh, I can't remember the name of the writer, but he's a, a, a kind of crime writer. And the, it's a short story about a dress that is cursed by Satan. Uh, so that's where it takes some of its. Uh, I guess the, the the main you know kind of like narrative is about that, but it has lots of other things in it as well. Um, so particularly with rele- relevance to something like Barbarian Sound Studio, sound design is always something that's been very significant in Strickland's work, uh, and particularly that one, which is about Foley artists in the seventies in a seventies Italian horror studio. And is it Toby Jones in that as well? Yeah, yeah, and he's absolutely fantastic. Um, and I don't know what the correlation is, but I was reading an interview with um, with Peter Strickland. He says that uh, the experience of having seen Eraserhead as a teenager is something that was life-altering for him. So that naturally resonated with me because that was a film that when I saw it, nothing was the same in terms of how I watched films after it. Uh, I think that's quite interesting. I think that's a film that focuses a lot on sound as well. Um, but uh, yeah, Strickland's films have got a, a lot of texture in them in terms of audio, and it's very apparent that a lot of attention has gone into uh, into kind of fastidiously creating these very delicate landscapes, um, but uh, it kind of reminds me of. Are you anybody familiar with a composer called Christian Markley? Oh, well, there, like there's the he's an artist, right? He's yeah, uh, he's yeah. So he's a he's a composer, visual artist. Uh, yeah. He explores connections between sound, noise, exper- and um, photography, video, and film. Mm-hmm. And uh, he. Actually, interesting, he was simultaneously kind of credited with inventing inventing turntablism because yes. he was doing it at the same time as, as uh, hip-hop artists were using the turntable as an instrument. But he used to do this thing where he would take records and smash them up and then piece them back together again. And, and that would be the, the, the art project that he would play. So you'd hear fragments of all these songs and then the cracks and the pops and everything else. It would just be this very weird way of like sucking you in and throwing you back out again. It was a very kind of uh, engaging way of um, experiencing... Uh, kind of installation art mm-hmm. but uh, that's kind of how it feels like watching his uh, watching Peter Strickland's films and, it's, and, and um, yeah in Fabric has just like a 100% amazing uh, series of performances from everybody in it that's so it's so real and strange and there's a, a separate kind of you know critique perhaps of, of uh, you know how we deal with consumerism as well but that's really secondary to all of the things that you get even just on the surface of it it's just a great film to experience so, um, you know, eight thumbs up for me. Something else worth checking out, and this is when we showed uh, the Duke of Burgundy for the first time at Metro, but uh, Strickland did a rendition of Nigel Neal's The Stone Tape from 1972, which is uh, which hypothesizes that ghosts are recordings of the past, uh, of past events made by the natural environment. And uh, since the original recording was made uh, by Nigel Neal, 
the theory theory of residual haunting has also become known as the stone tape theory. So that's mm. like it, f- uh, fiction becoming, you know, uh, fact in that way. But um, I have no idea where you can find that recording. But Strickland's version, I wager, would be on the internet somewhere. Google that. Um, but uh, Nigel Neal was uh, the creator of uh, Professor Bernard Quatermass. So have you seen the Quatermass experiment? No. No. What is? What are <laughs> what these? Is, Owen, what are we these talking about? Are, <laughs> these are just the things that you t- can take from watching a Peter Strickland film. It's like full of all There's of this so wonderful information. But um, yeah, so uh, Nigel Neal um, wrote the script for Halloween Three: Season of the Witch. Well, I have which, seen that. But I've heard it. I've heard it's a it's an unsung great yes, ha- Halloween uh, movie because really? because of its lack of uh, the involvement of, of Michael Myers. Uh, and the the kind of ensuing um, difficulty between the you know the writer the director and the studio because I think uh, Carpenter had wanted him to do it he had his name removed from the credits mm. and that was his mm. one and only I think experience of working in Hollywood. Well, I just like the premise too, and I think you know there's like when you go back and look at like the Twilight Zone, and, you know I think probably although it's before my time, kind of like you know, magazine publications that would deal with horror stories. You could just make anything haunted. Mm -hmm. You could just make any uh, random object (laughs) like, and it's, you know, it makes the world a really scary place if anything could be possessed and evil. So, you know, I think there was that movie rubber where there's a tire on killing people and it's a comedy, but it's like, it's actually within like all horror is absurd. So you might as well just, yeah, just embrace it. That was the, 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 made by the guy who's, uh, Dr. Oizo. Dr. Oizo. Yeah. yeah, Dr. Oizo. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And did you remember that? Do you remember the dancing monkey? The Dancing Monkey. Yeah, he, he was Dr. in... Dr. Izzo, it's like his big music video. Yeah. yeah. It's very strange. I've seen... Didn't he also do a film called Reality or something like yeah. that? Yeah. He did one called... Uh, was it Wrong as well? About a talking dog? A dog, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, he's fascinating. But I mean, I'm, I've got lots of time for films like that and in fabric that just... I'm, I have no idea what I'm watching. Suddenly I'm watching a film about a, a killer dress. Yeah. Like, where else do you see that? That's mm-hmm. fantastic. That's it's yeah, it's really nowhere good. but at the metro. Nowhere hey. but at the metro. <laughs> yes, that is going to be a new release for us. So it's going to be screening uh, as we said on Friday the sixth at nine o'clock. That'll be its uh, its first screening, and it's got a couple more screenings after that, which mm-hmm. is exciting because uh, his films are definitely one to experience on the big screen. The next in. Sharma's series uh, Working Hard Hardly Working last time she had Tangerine which is amazing and she's got 24 City this time Ooh. and uh, you was talking about this earlier I was I haven't oh, seen this but what can you tell me I about? do recall we were chatting about our favourite films of last year a while ago mm-hmm. and I, I believe I said Ash is the Purest White mm-hmm. which is another film directed by Jia Zhenkei and yeah I don't know I think he's a, a pretty interesting dude part of the Chinese like Sixth generation, yeah, sixth I think generation, is what they're yeah. called. Um, but yeah, a very interesting filmmaker that's super interested in like labor and you know the working class and sort of all that good stuff. So yeah, I'm super excited for this one. And this is actually a documentary, right? Oh, it's interesting okay. because I don't know, I don't, it seems like generally he's working with narrative. That's interesting because I feel like a documentary could be easily read as much more subversive. Than a fiction film, which makes me surprised that it was able to be released. But so it says it's about the transformation of Factory 420 in Chengdu from the secret manufacture of military aircraft engines in 1958 to a downsized and remodeled facility producing consumer 
products after the Vietnam War and then a privately owned real estate development. So I don't know what that means. Like yeah. what, what is, what is that? What, why is that interesting? Yeah. I have no idea, but yeah. I'm sure there's a reason. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it probably has to do with like how the, the labor, how the labor model changes within this, yeah. Yeah. this factory. So Jia Jiang Kei's film 24 City is a blend of fictive and documentary storytelling consisting of authentic interviews and stage scenes delivered by actors in a documentary format. As Heather mentioned, the factory central of the film is in Chengdu in the Sichuan province of southwest China, which is also the location of a devastating earthquake in 2008, roughly a year after the film was completed. The factory is known as Factory 420 and it originally manufactured fighter aircraft engines before it became repurposed as a manufacturer of consumer products. Jankei's film picks up at the point in time when the factory is being razed to the ground and replaced with new upscale developments like apartments and hotels as a symbol of prosperity and the area under development is, as a whole, known as 24 City. It's a complex narrative to observe with hindsight given that the earthquake in 2008 made 4.8 million residents homeless and killed around 70,000 people, but the sentiment of Jankei's work remains an essential tribute to the lives of thousands of workers that had already been dismissed in the pursuit of state progress. Does anyone know what this is? White Snake is it? It's an animation, isn't it? Yeah. Is it like a? So it looks like it's like the Frozen of China. Yeah. Like it's it's a CGI movie from China. So it's kind of mixing almost like an anime style with a Disney princess movie, but with way more action. It looks like Frozen if it had way more action. Okay. So I'm actually a little bit excited. (laughs) Okay. Because uh, I have a six-year-old daughter. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. So that's White Snake, and that's playing December thirteenth at seven p.m. But I don't know. If, I don't know if it's really for kids. I think it is. Well, we're showing uh, by the looks of it. The uh, the thirteenth is going to be the subtitled screening, and often if we do get uh, f- uh, anime films in like that, we'll show them twice. Once for the uh, real family cinema, and then right. once again with the. Uh, the dub the, and then the subtitle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. Clearly there's so something. So perhaps there's a distinction that it is perhaps geared towards more of an adult audience. Yeah. yeah. After that, though. After that. On the same day, at 9.15. Hark, Triton, hark. Bellow, bid our father, the sea king, rise from the depths, full foul in his fury. Black waves teeming with salt foam to smother this young mouth with pungent slime to choke ye. Engorging your organs till you turn blue and bloated with bilge and brine and can scream no more. Only when he, crowned in cockle shells with slithering tentacle tail and steaming beard, take up his fell befinned arm, his coral tine trident screeches banshee-like in the tempest and plunges right through your gullet, bursting ye, a bulging bladder no more, but a blasted bloody film. And now nothing for the harpies and the souls of dead sailors to peck and claw and feed upon, only to be lapped up and swallowed by the infinite waters of the dread emperor himself, forgotten to any man, to any time, forgotten to any god or devil, forgotten even to the sea, for any stuff or part of Winslow, even any scantling of your soul is Winslow no more. But is now itself the sea. You, you can uh, hear me performing more tales of the sea uh, <laughs> on the corner of 105th and White throughout December. I, I have to say, Owen, you seem like someone who could fit in right at home in the lighthouse. Thank you. And I haven't seen the movie, much. but just having seen the trailer, like he, you, 
I think you could have been cast. In I basically so. was as soon as it started. Um, <laughs> I was. I, I had a smile on my face yeah. from literally from start to finish the entire time. I was. In, I was rocking back and forth in my chair, like I was childlike mm-hmm. enjoying it. It was. <laughs> a, it was absolutely ridiculous. I couldn't believe someone. Had, it was like when I first saw Barbarian Sound Studio. I couldn't believe someone had made a film just for me. Right. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> let's let's like give this some sort of framework and I can't because no one knows what we're talking about yeah. this is of course The Lighthouse and uh, it's been getting absolutely rave reviews uh, from everyone and I think rightly so this is the second feature from Robert Eggers following 2015's The Witch which was an incredible directorial debut I didn't know that was his first film um, and uh, he co-wrote the screenplay with his brother for um, to, for The Lighthouse mm-hmm. so that's uh, only a second film I didn't know his brother was a writer than what else he's done but it, like, it's a dialogue heavy film I think I was I saw an interview with him and I think his brother wrote this script initially by himself and then right. like later moved on to something else and, and is it Roger or Robert Ro- uh, Robert's the uh, Robert the director and then yeah. Max is the is right. his brother yeah. so Robert was like oh can I like steal that script you wrote and then sort of they worked on it together to sort of bring it to what it is now. Yes, and it was part, so it's partially based on a, a true story, but I will get to that. Um, so yeah, uh, it follows Robert Pattinson, who uh, is sent to serve as a wiki or a lighthouse keeper for a four-week contract under the supervision of Willem Dafoe, and their relationship grows increasingly tense over the course of the film, uh, helped in part by the consumption of massive quantities of alcohol. And in fact, I have now uh, started using a new term, lighthouse drunk which is what we like to sometimes do at the tavern. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so, yes, I don't know if uh, anyone... I, I didn't actually really get the particulars of it when I was watching it for the first time because I was just enjoying it too much. And I also, my knowledge of Greek mythology ain't all that. Mm. But I did some research. So uh, the film is a fusion of different mythologies. So it's not just one uh, tale, drawing particularly on that of Prometheus and Proteus. So very, uh, to very briefly summarise how that fits in the framework of the lighthouse Prometheus is the figure credited with the creation of humanity from clay and who stole fire from the gods and gave it to humanity becoming the spark of civilization for his transgression Zeus condemned Prometheus to an eternity of torment and he was bound to a rock where each day an eagle the emblem of Zeus was sent to eat the liver of Prometheus Uh, the liver would grow back after it was consumed and was eaten again the following day for the rest of time uh, so that's a bum deal. Uh, Proteus, whom uh, Homer refers to as the old man of the sea, was a sea god and in certain variations of Greek mythology was the eldest son of Poseidon. It was said that he could foretell the future but would change shape to avoid having to. He's also referred to by some as the god of elusive sea change and represents versatility, adaptability and flexibility. So parts of that make its way into the story of the lighthouse. And I'm not going to tell you where because well that would be ruining it wouldn't it but the historical true story element of the film stems from an account from 1801 in which the two-man team of thomas howell and thomas griffith was stationed at the smalls lighthouse off marlowe's peninsula in pembrokeshire wales the men were known to quarrel and so when griffith died in a freak accident howell feared he might be suspected of murder if he were to have discarded the body into the sea As the body began to decompose, he built a makeshift coffin for it and lashed it to an outside shelf. Strong winds eventually blew the coffin apart and in the process caused the body's arm to fall within view of Howe's window, as if it were beckoning him. Though he continued to work alone, managing to keep the lamp lit, the experience left Howe an unrecognisable husk of his former self. 
it's a wonderful tale. Um, <laughs> yes, beautiful stuff. But uh, befittingly, I think. And, and what, what did you think, make of this? Will? Uh, sorry, not Will. I know <laughs> what your thoughts on it. But let's try and remain positive if we can. I, I would like to hear a little bit of debate, but absolutely. I, I think uh, I sit somewhere in the middle. I liked it a lot. I wasn't quite as over the moon about it as you were. Um, I think the acting Fair. is brilliant. Yeah. I think, uh, <laughs> yeah. I actually wrote down, befittingly, both performances are utterly titanic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, Willem Dafoe is amazing, as always, but like, yeah. normally normally he's amazing in a, a little bit more of a restrained way, but in this he kind of lets loose in a yeah. way you haven't seen him in a long time, I yeah. think. I think uh, that was what was nice for me as well. It was just, it, it, it was just the two of them. Yeah. The, the, the whole film is pretty much just the mm-hmm. two. Uh, actors and it, from what I understand uh, they would meet up with Eggers and go over parts of the script but Robert Pattinson doesn't like to work like that he likes to work instinctively on the set and that um, uh, that friction apparently is what caused the on-screen kind of um, yeah the tension is palpable that, yeah. that is true between the two and it's great characters to watch for yeah, sure the production there's like some interviews that have come out about like the story of the production it sounds like Defoe and Pattinson really kind of hated each other there for a minute. Got real rowdy toward each other. It, I feel that. <laughs> I feel that a lot. Yeah. Uh, no, it's just it's just awesome. I mean, Pattinson's kind of on a bit of a roll, I think, because Good Times was it Good Times or Good Time? Good Time. Yeah. Good Time, Good time. Was, uh, I thought it was fantastic. Um, and uh, what was the, the Claire Denis film? High Life. High Life. Mm-hmm. I thought, I, while I wasn't a huge fan of the film, I did end up watching it about three times when we showed it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he's he's brilliant in it, um, which is nice to see, because uh, you know I think uh, I pr- previously had just associated with Twilight films. And he sings the song in it too. Uh, yeah, that's true. He sings the song with, in uh, uh, Tinder Sticks. Oh yes, with, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like the Tinder Sticks. Yeah, very good. Claire Denis yeah. also really likes. The <laughs> 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 yes, she does. Every, isn't it every one of her I films pretty so. much? Yeah. Except Beautrevi, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Beautrevi right. is like a soundtrack. Yeah, from other people. Um, so yeah, in terms of how the film uh, looks and feels, it's um, it's all shot in four three, so that's like uh, square uh, on black and white thirty five mil film, uh, and it has uh, incredible photography, sound design, and is a feast for the senses. Mm-hmm. I think um, it also brings back so from the witch Mark Corvin, who was the composer for yeah. the witch, uh, he's also the composer for this one. Uh, he's done another amazing job. And did you know? Mark Corvin attended Grant McEwen here wow. in Edmonton in no, 1977. He studied studied jazz and orchestration. Wow. Later provided the score for Vincenzo Natale's The Cube. Oh, cool. that's he probably went to school in my workplace because that Grant yeah, McEwen that was the arts yeah, campus. Yeah, um, arts camps. What did I just say? Arts yeah. campus. Oh my goodness. Arts campus. <laughs> the arts campus. Um, this was, I thought this was fascinating as well about him. He is responsible, this is uh, Mark Corbin, is responsible for the creation of the Apprehension Engine, which is a custom-made musical instrument intended for the production of unsettling noises to be used on scores for horror films. Like is that. it just a foghorn button? It must be. <laughs> what an unbelievable name though, the Apprehension Engine. I wish, I might change my email to that. <laughs> There is another film, actually, and I sent you all a link to the trailer for it. I don't know if anyone watched it, but it was. Uh, I'm going to recommend it. I don't think we're going to show it because it's probably so small 
that it'll never make it over here. But uh, what I uh, recommend is called Bait. It's directed by Mark Jenkin, which is a tale of rising tension in a Cornish fishing village when local citizens are terrorised by an increasing number of tourists. And uh, the reason I bring it up is because it was all filmed on 16mm in black and white and all of its sound was post-dub, which makes you feel immediately like there's this discordance of, of communication. So that's the, the thing of people coming in and feeling alienated by uh, either the locals being alienated by tourists or vice versa. Um, uh, kind of, uh, ex- again, exposes these, these mechanics of, of, of cinema. And I think that was one of the things I enjoyed about The Lighthouse. There's a very a shot very early on when you first realise it's 4-3. He walks up this very narrow... Uh, stairwell to get to the bedroom and he bangs his head on the ceiling and it's almost like he's hitting his head on the top of the frame so it feels like immediately physically claustrophobic when you're in this tight mm. space um, that's just a, a kind of a little thing that I enjoy about it but yes bait we'll never show it but um, go and look it up on the internet it's directed by Mark Jenkins and it came out I think this year but it is uh, it's all shot on 60mm he developed all the film himself so it has his literal fingerprint on the mm-hmm. film and um, you know it's just uh, again about the craft it probably actually sounds like a more fascinating story. Um, and again, from what I hear, it's shown at a couple of film festivals uh, and people all over the world are saying that uh, this is a film that they can relate to because it's about, it, it has uh, you know, elements of, um, what am I trying to think of here? When people move in and poor people have to move out. Gentrification. Gentrification yeah, yeah. Uh, is you know, this sort of invasion of money, um, which is a very relatable story. And I think that... Uh, that might be, uh, to, you know, work in its in its favour in terms of uh, how well it gets seen. But I just don't think it's where it's one we're necessarily going to get. But he's made a lot of short films, and they're all kind of made in the same way. Like mm-hmm. he's a fascinating guy. Go and watch interviews with Mark Jenkins. He just knows his craft, yeah. and it's really interesting to hear him talk about it. Uh, but anyway, uh, so the Lighthouse first show is at nine fifteen on Friday the thirteenth, and uh, then it's going to be showing a couple more times after that, which is very exciting. Another film I'd like to point you in the direction of is Audrey Cummings' third feature, She Never Died, which is part of Lacey Page's ongoing series, Dead Femme. The film is a sister sequel to Jason Krawcheck's 2015 film, He Never Died, which starred Henry Rollins as an immortal cannibalistic loner who has withdrawn from society to protect himself and others. And in fact, there's also now a mini-series of the film in the works too. She Never Died tells a similar story, only this time Oloniki Adli plays a detached loner Lacey who is again cursed with immortality and the never-ending tedium of existence. From what I gather, it's an imaginative companion to its predecessor with some inspired performances throughout, particularly from Adli, so it sounds like it'll be a very worthy addition to the Dead Femme schedule. Audrey Cummings is a graduate of the Canadian Film Centre's very prestigious Director's Lab programme, and she also directed the award-winning feature film Berkshire County, which won nine awards, including Best Director and Grand Jury Prize for Best Feature at Shriekfest in LA, making her the first female to win the award in the history of the festival. Cummings was also the recipient of the Barry Average Award for Emerging Canadian Filmmaker at the 2011 Toronto International Film Festival. She Never Died screens on Friday the 27th at 9.30, so you can come and exercise your post-holiday demons just before 2020 gets underway. Accepted everywhere. This statement is simple yet powerful. It speaks to ATB's role as an inclusive organisation and to their firm stance in support of LGBTQ plus Albertans. Representation across Alberta, including rural communities, ATB's internal LGBTA network is working to transform ATB into the place to work for LGBTQ plus team members and allies. 
ATB has also incorporated this belief into a customised Pride MyPick Mastercard. ATB doesn't just talk about supporting Pride, this is who they are, and this is what they stand for. To learn more, visit atb.com forward slash pride. I'm now talking to Mr. G.H. Luma, whose new series Seven Deadly Sins is currently doing the rounds at Metro Cinema. He's also a journalist and filmmaker whose true identity remains something of a delightful mystery. So I'm going to start off by asking, if I may, if you'd tell us a little about yourself and who you've written for in the past. I was at Cinema Canada. I, was at, I did C Magazine, a programmer for Local Heroes. We did a series back. Um, Local Heroes used to be the National Screen Institute, which used to be here in Edmonton. Okay. And uh, I did a series for them back in the late 90s. I used to actually program. At the, I was the programmer for the Metro, I think, for about a two-month period in the mid-80s when oh. it was at its lowest ebb, okay. <laughs> you know, where it was, scre- where it was uh, screening at the, what, would, what was then the Roxy Theatre. It was not a theatre at that time. It was actually a cinema. It was the Roxy Movie Theatre. Okay. And we screened there for a two-month period because we, we had been booted out of the um, downtown Citadel it moved to the Roxy, and then I believe after that it went back to the National Film Board in Canada Place. Okay. Until it was booted out there, and it, it ended up, I believe, at the... I think it went back to the Citadel, and then it ended up at the Garneau again. I spent many years working in the film industry in Saskatchewan, so I, I wrote for Prairie Dog as well, too. And um, I also... I also put up my own fanzine back okay. uh, in the uh, 1980s called the Empton Film Guide. And I think we did about two or three issues of that, and that was a free uh, kind of do-it-yourself, cut-and-paste kind of fanzine. Did you review your own film in 1988? <laughs> yes. Yes. See, see how, how that came about originally, how this film came about was um, I, uh, when I was younger, I wrote, produced, and directed three of my own feature-length films. Okay. And, and I, funded, I funded them all. But at that time, it was impossible to get press. So to get press, uh, there was a, probably the only Canadian film magazine at that time was called Cinema Canada. So what I did was I reviewed my first film, but I would have to, I did it obviously under the pseudonym. And yeah. I tried to be very fair and even handed. And I actually ended up giving the money from it, which wasn't a heck of a lot for the review. Okay. Probably around 50 bucks or 100 bucks to the Film and Video Arts Society. And that's how, and that's how it came about. And it's actually just an amalgam of two directors' names, which I merged as one. But ever since then, I also, I, I did reviews for C Magazine before it went under for about a two or three year period. Paul Matichuk, who was the editor at that time, I pitched him an idea, which, which he agreed to, which was great. And this was back in about 2006, 2007, where I would go online to um, primarily YouTube, but mm. I would just go into Google Video and just find things which were becoming available. Okay. online and your reviews re- reviews for that so that's where it continued as well too and in this context I thought it would just be fun to just continue to sing them all, all along Seven Deadly Sins is a new curatorial and it's, uh, it's had its first screening already with Scarface on November 2nd. The latest one is going to be Greed uh, from 1924, directed by Eric von Stroheim on uh, December 29th. But tell us a little bit about the series and, and how you came to settle on that name. Well, the series itself 
was just kind of something that just came to me one day and I saw the curatorial advertisement that Metro brought forth and so I thought well why not let's give it a shot and I was very pleased and very grateful that they decided to uh, take a chance on the series and the series itself is just kind of designed as a, a playful way for for people to get into the history of film mm-hmm. and uh, I think one of the more disheartening things I find now with audiences is that they, for whatever reason, they've been socialized not to really engage or to really explore film history. It seems like anything pre-2000 is completely rejected. And it's just a way to kind of open the door for people to, for various genres and various types of filmmaking experience to get them engaged once again into the just the magic and the beauty of that film history has to offer and i i guess within the context of the series seven deadly sins it's a great way of storytelling because they're all uh, one can argue that all those stories or all those sins are fundamental storytelling now you've gone quite far back with greed being and it's from 1924 is also the i think it was mgm's first feature-length film and that's correct yeah one of the first films along with uh, uh giga vertov's kino eye to use a hidden camera which is pretty interesting yeah it's it's an extraordinary work of art i see it as one of the 10 greatest films ever made and what's remarkable about greed is that it will be in four years 100 years old and it yeah. does not date one iota. You know, it's it's actually much more modern than um, hundreds of films that have been made within the past five years. You know, once you see it, you can you will never forget it. So it's a truly remarkable experience to see, especially on the big screen as well. You know, you'll you'll find the. With the screening of Greed, we're going to be showing the closest approximation to the complete version, which sadly has disappeared. But you'll find that the narrative in the version that the audience will see is so vast and comprehensive and explores so much detail and it goes off in so many different directions. It puts modern narrative almost it, it, it to shame it, the scope is so magnificent and the scope of narrative today and I'm, I'm not really trying to bash movies today because I don't think that's a really healthy thing to do but it, it's it's kind of sad to see how um, modern audiences have been you know socialized to um, diminish or disrespect narrative. So uh, another thing I want to ask you about, actually, is uh, as well as your series, is your your work as a location manager. Oh well, I um, I've worked as a location manager since well, probably about 1995. Now I'm kind of transitioning. It's a very hard job to do physically, emotionally, uh, because it, the hours are really long. It's, you're yeah. dealing with 16 to 18 hour days. So I'm I'm transitioning now to work 
in the locations department, but I work more of a of in an offset role whereby I'll be assisting location managing and doing a lot of logistical works, but I don't have to do the hours necessarily or deal with the um, just the day-to-day chaotic situations that arise yeah. from the filmmaking process. You're working on a film currently called uh, Nobody, is that right? Yes, that's correct. This one's got... Bob Odenkirk. Bob Odenkirk, that's right, yeah. How's that experience working out? When we work, we always have to sign non-disclosure agreements <laughs> because um, I'm working with an American uh, studio. But it's, it's as with every film, every film is a, it, it's an exciting process. The physicality of film is such that, for me, like I have a very strong aesthetic love and aesthetic appreciation for film. But when you're actually working on the film, you don't really, you're not really thinking of the aesthetics as much. You're thinking of the actual nuts and bolts and how you go ahead and you make every single day of a production. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating because you can you begin to see very clearly how it's such a mysterious process because there have been films I've worked on which um, I thought would be really great but were not well received at all and I've worked on films which I didn't really think anything would happen to it and they became very very successful okay. so it's it's a it's a really intriguing process but it's also it's also business as well too and it's it's fascinating to observe kind of on the sidelines which you are as a film worker you have a certain role to do but it's a huge machine and you're just part of a big machine that keeps on rolling and rolling and rolling on and on i recently did a, a television series for amazon prime called tales from the loop which i believe is coming out early next year it's speculative science fiction, which is more, I think, has a more European feel than necessarily North American feel. Uh, uh, but again, it was, we had to really closely guard a lot of things and a lot of elements because uh, it's, it's a very large investment for these companies and they have to protect their investments because it's, it's just a very unique landscape now where people will react they'll react more to social media than necessarily what they will react to reality i find more and more now we have a bunch of question marks in the rest of our uh, seven deadly sins um, scheduling is there any other films that you actually um wanted to bring that aren't necessarily sure you can get them yet but what kind of things do you want to show as part of the series as well well, I'm just in, um, right now we're in discussion with Pete Harris, the programmer, to see what we can bring. Um, but what I've tried to do is I've tried to really diversify genre and try to uh, diversify the period of films that we're uh, showing. So to give as best as I can a really great overview, bring forward some some films which are more well-known, i.e. Scarface, mm-hmm. and some which are are lesser known, but equally as um, dynamic and as exciting and, and entertaining to watch. Hopefully, it will open people's minds to kind of get away from the monoculture that kind of exists t- 
today in in a lot of people's viewing habits and hopefully people can kind of expand their horizon. Thank you very much for talking to me. So Greed is on the 29th of December, so do your Christmas and then come and watch an incredible film that'll take your mind off of all of that. Thank you, Mr. Luma. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. It was great. Absolutely, any time. And uh, yeah, if you're uh, if you're up for it, we'll uh, we'll have you back on when you get the next one uh, when you get the next one scheduled. Oh, fantastic! Thanks. Parasite, which has uh, just come out, directed by Bong Joon Ho. Am I correct? Oh. Yeah. And uh, Nick, <laughs> I know yes. you. I know you went to see it. I did go and see it. How did you find it? He's, uh, so, uh, yeah, go on. Um, so Bong Joon Ho continues his tradition of making movies that are totally wild. Okay. Um, it seemingly starts out as kind of a somewhat silly, almost comical. Um, family, not family friendly film, but it's about a family who's not um, well off at all, kind of struggling, but they're they're all in good spirits and well-meaning, and um, the son is hired by a wealthy, wealthy family to tutor their daughter, um, and he quickly realizes that this, this rich family is susceptible to infiltration on all sides, so he quickly gets his sister hired as the art teacher um, for their young son, and the father hired as the driver. So essentially, um, it, what turns into this kind of maybe somewhat silly satire quickly unravels into something much more sinister and a much deeper look into class, probably not only in Korea, but across the world and the growing wage gap between middle class families or middle class people and um, high class people. I, I don't think I'm quite as over the moon as some people are. Some people seem to be calling it one of the best films in, of like the past several years and mm -hmm. an absolute masterpiece. And I, I think it's really good. Um, and I do think it hits all the notes. It's funny. And by the end, you're kind of left going, what? Like, this yeah. is crazy. But um, It's the first Korean film to win the Palm Door. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I is think. actually shocking to me, to be honest. But yeah. You're a big uh, Peppermint Candy guy? Yeah. He no, he's Lee Chang Dong. Lee Chang Dong. Lee Chang Dong. Yeah, yeah. I love Lee Chang Dong. Uh, I think everyone should see it. It's definitely one of the better movies I've seen this year. So you also made The Host and Mother, which I've seen. And I also, mm -hmm. I, I had no idea who made Snowpiercer, but it was him. Mm -hmm. And Snowpiercer I saw completely against my will. I was invited to a garden party in the winter when I first came to Edmonton. And it was being screened in the garden. That's how I saw it. And it was just a really weird film. I, I, I don't, don't buy this. We don't have garden parties. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. In the winter? <laughs> you just don't know the right people. Uh, hey, guys, do you want to come to a garden party? I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so on your, so, on your yeah. patio. Yeah, yeah, just Maybe not after it. watching Parasite, but... So no? Will has also seen it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. So did you, did you go and see it? So there, it was screening just for one... It was part of the Edmonton Film International Film Festival. Okay, so that's, yeah. I know that's when you went to see it, wasn't it? And there was yeah. a, uh, some huge rush for tickets. Like, it was absolutely well, sold a, out. They did a second screening because the first one sold out. So wow, okay. What did you make of it? I thought it was pretty good, yeah. yeah. I think, like, technically, it's a very well-made film. Okay. Great, yeah, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, it's Bong Joon-ho who, like, knows what he's doing. And I think there's, like, an interesting thing where, like, the film is sort of being taken up as this, like, masterpiece and it's going to, you know, inevitably have this whole discussion around it about, oh, is it, like, an Oscar? Like, is it going to win? And I think that conversation will inevitably sort of, like, subsume the actual important, like, political, like, the blatant sort of uh, class 
dynamics that he's trying to explore, but mm. that's sort of how things go. Yeah, I think I do. Why think are you surprised? <laughs> yeah, I think really it's not. a little unfortunate that some of the, again, the the ending is so bombastic in a way that it kind of almost underplays the actual themes of the film. I find, okay. um, it definitely feels like some of the the excitement over it uh, gets gets a little lost, or it gets it under. Yeah, people are excited about the ending rather yeah. than like what's it's yeah. really right. talking yeah. about. Yeah, okay. talking about like yeah. Bong Joon Ho's like, oh my god, he's so crazy. Instead yeah. of being like, oh look, there's structural problems. Maybe yeah. we should like fix them. Right. <laughs> well, you know, come and find out for yourself. Yeah. Uh, on Friday the twentieth at six forty-five, that's when we're going to be uh, screening that for the first time, and then a few more times after that. Uh, again, metrocinema.org for more details. Edmonton Community Foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group. Once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by the Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. This year's focus is on arts, philanthropy, green spaces, and sports and recreation. Learn more at ecfoundation.org. So the piano teacher, directed by Michael Haneke, who's uh, another of my favorite filmmakers. So the film is based on a, the uh, 1983 novel of the same name written by Alfred Jelinek, who uh, won the 2004 Nobel Prize for Literature. Uh, it tells the story of a piano teacher at a Viennese conservatory who also lives with her mother in a state of emotional and sexual disequilibrium as she enters into a sadomasochistic relationship with one of her students. And uh, Hanukkah had actually read the novel when it was published initially and he wanted to adapt it to, uh, and, and direct a film version as a means of transitioning from television to cinema. But somebody else also had already purchased the rights to it, um, for, uh, and for, but for other reasons it didn't happen until 2001. So I think that version didn't make it, but that was going to be his first film. Um, so, uh, yes, Isabel Huppert plays uh, Erica Cahoot, uh, who in her daily professional life presents a very assured, abrupt and aloof image of herself while at the same time struggling with loneliness and sexual repression, which is manifested in her paraphilia that includes voyeurism, self-harm and sadomasochistic fetishes. Um, and for me, this was the first film of his that I saw, of Michael Hannigan's that I saw that really cemented my infatuation with him as a filmmaker. So whether you like them or not, I can't help but find him interesting. Um, I'd already seen Benny's video uh, and Funny Games and Code Unknown by that point, but he had also already made The Seventh Continent and uh, 71 Fragments of a Chronology of Chance. And I was initially intrigued by, um, with, his other, with those other films and the way his work challenges the treatment of violence, particularly in Funny Games, uh, has that very memorable scene. Um, of you know undoing things that you don't want to see as well as his very apparent and uh, brazen technical dexterity where the mechanics of cinema are concerned but the piano teacher offers a lingering and delicate examination of the ways in which we navigate things like desire and jouissance which is the physical or intellectual pleasure delight or ecstasy but again it's not necessarily in a very positive right light yes it might yeah. it might give one the impression that kinky people are just um, disturbed i mean i it's been so long since i have seen the piano teacher and i'm kind of interested to see it again and see how my sensitivity 
creativity mm. has changed. I haven't even watched a Hanukkah film in a long time. I, I guess most recently, more, which was, you know, it's still a hard watch at times, but it's a lot easier than a lot of his other films. And so I haven't, you know, I remember seeing Benny's video and just kind of loving it. And at the same time, kind of like asking why like why am I watching this like what why am I doing this to myself why am I making myself so uncomfortable that's I think uh, one of the key things about watching his films as well I think um, again with with stuff like Benny's video particularly uh, and more I think he's become more advanced as a filmmaker as mm-hmm. he's gone on I think uh, it helps that he's also a lecturer I think at the uh, Vienna Film School so he's kind of like always educating himself and you could kind of get that from watching his films but with a more you're being shown something very very uncomfortable which is the the advancement of like onset dementia yeah but with the piano i mean it's fun it's interesting that it was withdrawn i guess from the kink on screen series because that is about celebrating kink yes and i think what he's doing here is showing what happens when you can't when you dab and you have no kind of platform right. or outlet yeah, yeah, for yeah. it where it isn't you don't get given a right. safe right she's place. very trapped you're just clandestine and you're forced to deal with it in these kind of like increasingly um, kind of violent ways mm-hmm. and you know she's a she self-harms in the film quite a lot and mm-hmm. it's not drawing a line between having a kind of sexual version and that being the, the way you manifest that is by self-harm mm-hmm. um, but this character does yeah. um, and again it was based on a novel from 1983 so there's, there's, there's it's partly belongs you know the, the ownership of the source material is not entirely his right um but there i was reading a lot about him actually and um so he, i have a good quote from him my films are intended as uh, polemical statements against the american barrel down cinema and its disempowerment of the spectator they are an appeal for a cinema of insistent questions instead of false answers for clarifying distance in in place of violating closeness for provocation and dialogue instead of consumption and consensus and i actually think that's quite a fair Mm -hmm. uh, statement about his own work So on Sunday the 22nd uh, at 9.30, we're showing uh, Black Christmas, a Canadian classic. Canadian classic. Truly, perhaps the inventor of the slasher genre, unless you count Peeping Tom. So then 1974, (laughs) four years before Halloween, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the first films to feature a slasher type theme. And... While you, while it sounds like it would maybe be cheesy or kind of silly, it's actually still to this day, for me at least, one of the top five most terrifying movies that I've seen. Um, the voice that the killer does on the phone is is truly disturbing. The the high pitched kind of squealing and it, it's it's a highly disturbing movie, but it's very good. What else are we showing in terms of? Christmas. We're screening on Christmas Eve. Yes. A double bill of It's a Wonderful Life and Elf. Okay. Which I endorse both. Yeah. I think they're both pretty pretty great. I don't know. I think Elf is like I I, I just think that Will Ferrell commits so much to what that character conceptually is, and that's what makes the movie work. Is that yes. um to you know to be playing like a human who's grown up in the elf world and thinks he's an elf and just every line delivery is so perfectly calculated to that like we don't really um 
we don't really honor that kind of comedic performance in the way that we honor dramatic performances, but I think there's just so much like thought and skill that goes into that. I actually thought that uh, James Kahn is pretty, he uh, is great, in pretty wonderfully yeah. comic in it. In like obviously, he's but he's kind of a, a caricature of himself, yeah. Or the at least the idea of him you would have from watching his films, but he's he's got great comic timing. Yeah. So here's what I'm gonna say about Elf. Yeah. I think I was the exact wrong age for that film because um. I think when it came into prominence I was maybe like 15 14 15 like I'm too like, cool for yeah, that I'm too cool for Christmas so my like Christmas movies to me read as like the Santa Claus mm-hmm. or Jingle right. All the Way Tim Allen joints yeah the oh Tim dear. Allen, the Tim Allen yeah. Jingle All the Way too. <laughs> Schwarzenegger like uh, yes, so sure. for Absolutely. me Elf doesn't hold the same weight oh. the same pull but I, I do see how and I love Will Ferrell and I think it's pretty good yeah, I mean, also, so when I used to work at the video store, I would work Christmas Eve every year, and we would watch, like, Christmas movies, like, straight through the day, and I remember working with my coworker, and um, she and the, we started together at noon, and she was like, I'm just really not feeling the Christmas spirit this year, I don't know what's wrong with me, and then we put on Elf at the end of the day, and by the end of it, she was crying, and yeah. she was just so, like, it, it had won her over into the Christmas spirit. Um, and then I don't know. It's a wonderful life. I it's a wonderful life. What, were I, like what about we were showing Gremlins? I don't like yeah. James Stewart. That's you don't okay. Like Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy. Oh my god. I mean, yeah. is it because he talks in that funny voice? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but he's always the same character, except I like him the most in Rear Window. Rear Window is a great film. Playing Gremlins. Gremlins. And National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Oh my goodness! When's that? December oh, it's the day before. Okay, so December. So the 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 nineteenth at seven o'clock. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation and the Friday the 20th at 9.30 Gremlins also Die Hard on December 14th oh yes and A Christmas Story wow yeah and Klaus we've got yeah there's some new ones too this Christmas coming out of the one uh, dial code Santa, Santa. Claus. Yeah, dial yeah. code Santa Claus. I want to challenge people to go see Greed. Greed, yes. As part totally. of the Seven Deadly Sins okay. series. Also, did, did, did you interview? I have spoken to yeah. uh, Mr. G.H. Luma okay. uh, as uh, as he is being um, known for this That's curious right. role. Yes. That's such a cool series, isn't it? Uh, it is, and yeah, he was he was uh, he was absolutely fascinating. That will have already happened by the time we get to this portion of us talking about it okay well i'm just gonna reiterate let's do it that you should you should go see greed it's four hours long Mm -hmm. it's you know essential silent film four of the supposed 10 that originally existed but uh yes go to metrocinema.org to find out more details about all the things we've been talking about uh i've been owen thank you very much for listening thank you william thanks mate thank you nick you're welcome and thank you heather merry christmas (laughs) (laughs) right awesome yeah we'll see you in the lobby